This is Site 2. Coming up. Claims civil servants plotting to sabotage Brexit completely crazy, says Gus O'Donnell. Nicola Sturgeon demands UK government engages urgently with Edinburgh on Brexit. Quitting EU's customs union will mean trade barriers unavoidable, insists Michel Barnier. Nicola Sturgeon criticised for deafening silence over East Coast rail collapse. Chris Deeran. Why abolishing tuition fees is tokenistic feel-good rubbish. Rosemary Goring. Scots might not be able to see the sheep for the trees. The SFA and SPFL. Would Scottish football's two-headed monster be better together? Rona Howie's Olympic gold remains an iconic sporting moment. This article from the Herald on Monday the 5th of February 2018. Politics. Claims civil servants plotting to sabotage Brexit completely crazy, says Gus O'Donnell. This article by Michael Settle. Claims that Whitehall civil servants are seeking to sabotage the UK government's Brexit strategy have been denounced as completely crazy by former head of the civil service, Lord Gus O'Donnell. The ex-Cabinet Secretary also suggested that a hard Brexit was akin to selling snake oil. His repost followed a claim by leading Brexiteer Jacob Rees-Mogg that officials are fiddling the figures to influence the UK government policy towards a soft Brexit. But in a staunch defence of Whitehall, Lord O'Donnell said honesty and objectivity ran through the core of civil servants like a stick of rock and the forecasts would have been made in good faith. Responding to claims officials distorted their analysis, the former civil servant told ITV's Peston on Sunday, that's completely crazy. The truth is, civil servants operate by the civil service code. Their values are honesty, objectivity, integrity, impartiality. Their job is to look at the evidence and present it as best they can, analyse the uncertainties, but that's what they do. They're objective and impartial. And what you find is that tends to get accepted very nicely when it agrees with someone's prior beliefs. But actually, when someone doesn't like the answer, quite often they decide to shoot the messenger. When it was pointed out that the civil service seemed to be facing one of the most sustained attacks on its integrity in living memory by serving ministers, the crossbench peer replied, We look at the evidence and we go where it is. Of course, if you're selling snake oil, you don't like the idea of experts testing your products. And that's what we've got. This backlash against evidence and experts is because they know where the experts will go. His remarks follow those of another former cabinet secretary, Lord Turnbull, who accused Brexiteers who blamed civil servants for trying to sabotage Britain's withdrawal from the EU of using tactics similar to those adopted by the right-wing German nationalists in the 1930s. The ex-Whitehall Mandarin compared their claims to the myth of the stab in the back perpetuated by the German right following their country's defeat in the First World War. He and Lord O'Donnell's comments are likely to inflame the bitter war of words between some Brexiteers and officials in Whitehall who deeply resent the attacks on their impartiality. Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, also leapt to the defence of the civil service, saying she had complete confidence in its impartiality, stressing how ministers respected officials' objectivity. She pointed out how Britain's civil servants were admired around the globe. 
commenting on Mr Rees Mogg's remarks. She told the BBC's Andrew Marshall, I'm very surprised at Jacob because he is famously courteous, famously thoughtful, articulate, so I'm very surprised that he's used that language. She went on, He is wrong here, and this document he is particularly referring to is not a Treasury document anyway. It's prepared across different departments, and it's a tool for informing those of us who are on the EU subcommittee about the choices that are going to be made. It's not about projecting one way or another. The SNP seized on the Tory infighting, warning it could push the UK off a Brexit cliff edge. Stephen Gethins, the party's Europe spokesman, said... It's increasingly clear the hard right of the Tory party are unwilling to accept anything but the hardest of hard Brexits, and they're willing to drive the UK off the cliff edge to get it. The MP for North East Fife said it was now essential that Theresa May faced down the extreme Brexiteers in her party and her cabinet. He added, Decisions being made now matter to us all, no matter how people voted. The Tories are putting jobs, the economy, opportunities for young people, the environment and all of the other areas that all rely on our relationship with Europe at risk with this ongoing self-indulgent political pantomime. Remaining in the single market and the customs union is essential for the economy, jobs and living standards, and it's high time the Tories put that before their internal squabbles. This article by Michael Settle. The Herald Scotland, on Wednesday the 7th of February 2018. Politics section. Nicola Sturgeon demands UK government engages urgently with Edinburgh on Brexit. This article by Michael Settle. Nicola Sturgeon has demanded that the UK government engages in urgent and meaningful discussion with the devolved administrations on the direction of the Brexit negotiations. Her call came as Whitehall was said to be in utter chaos over its preparations for Brexit after the influential Commons Public Accounts Committee, PAC, suggested it was acting too slowly and with not enough transparency on progress and costs, raising a fear that the whole process could turn into a damaging and unmanageable muddle. Ahead of two key meetings of the UK Cabinet's War Committee of Senior Ministers today and tomorrow to thrash out what Britain wants from its future relationship with the EU, the First Minister wrote to the Prime Minister suggesting that she was acting in direct contravention of the terms of the Intergovernmental Joint Ministerial Committee to agree on a UK approach to Brexit. Ms Sturgeon wrote, To date, the discussions in the JMC have fallen far short of that ambition and of your own commitment when we met in July 2016 to full involvement. I expect that following the meeting of your Cabinet subcommittee, there will remain full scope for the Scottish Government and other devolved administrations to influence the shape of the UK approach and objectives for negotiations. She added that, in light of the timetable ahead of the March European Council, that there must be urgent and meaningful discussion between us to try and agree a UK position and therefore enable our European partners to respond. The FM expressed frustration at Whitehall's attitude towards the devolved administrations and insisted that it was unacceptable that Mrs May and her senior colleagues in London were deciding on that UK-EU relationship without meaningful engagement with the devolved administrations. After Downing Street categorically ruled out the UK being in any customs union post-Brexit, she declared, We're seeing the government yet again put the interests of the Conservative Party ahead of the interests of the country. Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, has suggested people would be surprised at the level of unity there is at Cabinet level and promised clarity in the next few weeks on the UK government's approach to what it wants from the final Brexit deal. 
She claimed Ms Sturgeon would have known about the UK government's general approach to Brexit from the PM's speeches and insisted there had been quite a lot of consultation with devolved assemblies. But I can understand Nicola would like to have more involvement. She always would. But I'm certain she was consulted before those speeches. Ms Rudd noted how there had been a lot of picking over about the term customs union and pointed how the government had published a document last summer setting out two possible options for a future customs arrangement or partnership with the EU post-withdrawal. I hope in the next few weeks we will be able to give some clarity to people and let me reassure Nicola Sturgeon we will make sure we talk to her about it as well, added the Home Secretary. In other developments, the PAC said governmental departments had been too slow to begin practical preparations to get the country ready for Brexit. It called for urgent action to recruit staff, streamline decision-making and cut back on other commitments, warning the real world will not wait for the government to get its house in order. Martin Day, a SNP member of the committee, said it's utterly shocking that there is no clear plan from the Tories and for people tasked with implementing Brexit for the department. It's utter chaos. Robert Choate, head of the Office for Budget Responsibility, said controversial draft official assessments about the possible cost of Brexit, which showed growth would be hit under the scenarios considered, should never have been kept secret and, in an ideal world, ministers would have planned to publish them. The British Chambers of Commerce have warned the PM business patience with the Cabinet's continued division on Brexit is wearing thin and urged Mrs May to urgently deliver a clear statement of what the government wants. This article by Michael Settle. Article from Herald Scotland, 6th February 2018. Politics. Quitting EU's customs union will mean trade barriers unavoidable, insists Michel Barnier. Michael Settle. Leaving Europe's customs union will mean the UK facing unavoidable barriers to trade, goods and services, Michel Barnier has warned. After talks in number 10, the EU's chief negotiator said Theresa May's government must provide more clarity on what it wanted in the next stage of the Brexit process. Senior cabinet ministers will meet on Wednesday and Thursday to thrash out the government's approach to the two-year transition period after withdrawal in 2019. Dining Street stressed how the UK wants a future customs arrangement with the EU to be as frictionless as possible, which it believes is possible because it would be in both parties' interests to achieve it. In an attempt to eradicate confusion over the UK government's position on the customs union, Number 10 has categorically ruled out remaining in the customs union with the EU after withdrawal, prompting David Davis, the Brexit secretary, to insist Britain's position is perfectly clear on the issue. However, after a three-course lunch of smoked salmon, pork belly and vanilla custard tart, Mr Barnier told the UK the time has come to make a choice. He stressed that during the two-year transition period, the conditions were very clear. Everyone has to play by the same rules, adding, the certainty about this transition will only come with the ratification of the withdrawal agreement. The EU's chief negotiator, who earlier said the negotiators had not a minute to lose, also called for clarity from the government on what it wanted from a future partnership between the UK and the EU. The only thing I can say... Without a customs union and outside the single market, barriers to trades on goods and services are unavoidable, he declared. Mr Davis said the UK wanted a comprehensive free trade agreement while still having the opportunity to make deals across the rest of the world. 
It's perfectly clear what we want to do. There's no doubt about it. We are leaving the customs union, but we are aiming for a good future for Britain, insisted the Secretary of State. Confirmation of the government's approach on the customs union will to some extent placate Tory MPs and ministers who are keen for a Brexit arrangement which allows the UK to strike trade deals around the world, something which being part of a customs union prevents. But business leaders have urged the government to remain in a customs union, and Tory Brexit rebel Anna Soubry urged Number 10 to do the maths and listen to them. She claimed the hard Brexit European research groups of Tory MPs, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, has a deeply unattractive plan which involved leading the customs union to chase unicorn trade deals at the expense of existing relations with the EU. Mr Davis said the Barnier talks, which the Prime Minister dropped in on, had been very constructive and the next round would focus on the implementation period. An intense period of negotiations will begin straight away and the government was confident of securing an agreement at the next meeting of EU leaders in March, added the Secretary of State. But the ruling out of any future customs union alarmed some. Tom Brake, for the Liberal Democrats, said, The idea that the UK will not be in the or any customs union confirms that the crazed extremes Brexiteers are now in control of the government. And SNP's Stephen Gethins said Downing Street's move on the customs union showed the Tories are putting party before country and that is reckless and irresponsible. Francis O'Grady, the TUC General Secretary, said, By ruling out a customs union, the government is choosing to put up barriers to UK trade with Europe. It will be bad for jobs, bad for investment and bad for business. The Prime Minister must break free of the Brexit extremists in her party and put working people first. The best way to protect jobs, investments and rights at work is through the single market and customs union, she added. The Herald Scotland on Wednesday the 7th of February 2018. Politics section. Nicola Sturgeon criticised for deafening silence over East Coast rail collapse. This article by political correspondent Alistair Grant. Nicola Sturgeon should call for Stagecoach to be stripped of its East Coast mainline rail franchise and banned for ever building for a rail contract in Scotland again, a former UK Transport Secretary has said. Ex-Labour Minister Andrew Adonis said he was astonished at the First Minister's silence over the troubled London to Edinburgh line. He said a golden opportunity had been missed to make the case for a Scottish-English state-run company to take over the vital transport connection, but instead insisted the Scottish Government had gone AWOL. It comes as UK Transport Secretary Chris Grayling indicated Perth-based Stagecoach would only continue running the line for a small number of months and no more after it got its sums wrong and racked up huge cost overruns. Lord Adonis said Stagecoach and Virgin Trains, who run the franchise as a joint venture, were walking away with £2 billion worth of commitments to the taxpayer. He slammed the decision to extend Virgin's contract for the West Coast mainline, which it also runs with Stagecoach, as well as allowing the companies to bid on future franchises. The former Labour minister said Ms Sturgeon's silence was deafening, adding, and I hope it's nothing to do with the fact that Brian Souter, Stagecoach's founder and chair, has in the past been a close ally. He told the Herald, Scotland has potentially paid a very heavy price for Chris Grayling's deal to bail out the East Coast line, and the Scottish Government should have been protesting very loudly and very publicly. They've certainly not been protesting publicly. 
Lord Adonis said Miss Sturgeon should have called for a public company to be set up, in which the Scottish Government has a share. He added, This was a golden opportunity for her to make the case for a Scottish-English state company to run the most important transport connection between Scotland and England, and improve it in the process. And the Scottish Government has basically gone AWOL. Lord Adonis was UK Education Minister before becoming Transport Secretary in 2009 under Gordon Brown. He earlier told the BBC Ms Sturgeon should be quizzed over whether she thinks this contract should now, today, be taken away from Stagecoach and Stagecoach should be penalised and banned from bidding for all future contracts in respect of rail business in Scotland. Mr Grayling told MPs Stagecoach could either continue operating the franchise on a short-term, not-for-profit basis or the East Coast mainline could be brought back under public control, but he said there was no question of a bailout, with Stagecoach facing losses of £200 million. It marks the second time the East Coast franchise has collapsed, after National Express ran out of money in 2009. Transport Minister Humza Yousaf insisted that the Scottish Government had made clear its preference for public sector operators to be given a fair chance to operate our railways. He added, Previous UK administrations including when Lord Adonis was in government, have repeatedly denied the Scottish Government the powers to allow a public sector body to bid for rail franchises. Only now, after repeated efforts, do we have powers to enable future contracts in Scotland to be let to the public sector, and we are working to enable a public sector bid for Scotland Railways in the future. The UK Government has the contractual relationships with East Coast Rail's operators, and they should be held to account for the current situation. Our priority is to ensure continuity of services for travellers. The UK government should learn from their experiences and maintain the East Coast line in public ownership. A stagecoach spokesman said, We've neither walked away from the East Coast franchise nor have we received or asked for any special treatment. We have operated trains on behalf of the government for the past 21 years, meeting in full our contractual commitments and delivering a better railway for customers and the country, including on the West Coast franchise. The government has made clear that, as a professional, high-quality rail operator with a strong track record, there is no basis, legal or otherwise, on which we should be precluded from bidding for rail franchises. This article was by political correspondent Alistair Grant. Remember, you no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can in fact listen to more daily content online via www.qandreview.com slash free podcasts, accessible on your computer or mobile device. Chris Deeran, why abolishing tuition fees is tokenistic feel-good rubbish? An article by Chris Deeran published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 6th of February 2018. For the past 20 years, Andrew Adonis has had an influence on British politics that has far outweighed his public profile. Lord Adonis is the centrist's centrist. He was perhaps New Labour's equivalent of Sir Keith Joseph, the intellectual force behind much of the Thatcherite revolution. Although a cabinet minister, Sir Keith always made for an uncertain public figure and seemed happier out of the limelight, worrying away at naughty policy problems. Lord Adonis is similarly geeky and awkward and has been highly effective in that tricky space where ideas meet action, a less common skill in politics than you might think. 
He was closely involved in the London Challenge Scheme that so transformed the capital's education system and was the driving force behind the Academies programme across England, which, with Labour and then Tory support, has driven up standards and improved the life prospects of many children from underprivileged backgrounds. The SNP's current policy of giving more autonomy to head teachers owes much to Lord Adonis, whether they'd admit it or not. He was also the originator of the high-speed two-rail line that is planned between London and the north of England. Few were surprised when he accepted David Cameron's offer to run a new National Infrastructure Commission, which sought to take tribal politics out of long-term projects in vital areas such as energy, transport and technology. He resigned from that role last year over the government's approach to Brexit. In the past few months, Lord Adonis has turned his attention to the higher education sector or back to it. He was responsible in 2004 for the introduction of university tuition fees, which the Blair government set at a maximum of £3,000. But he has now turned against them. He argues that since the coalition government raised the limit to 9,250, the system has spiralled out of control and its initial purpose has been undermined. Students are racking up enormous debts they stand little chance of ever repaying, often for mediocre courses at mediocre institutions. He has also, with notable success, led a campaign against the inflated pay levels of vice-chancellors, whom he accuses of being financially greedy, both for their institutions and themselves. This, it should be said, is some record. Lord Adonis has achieved more than some Prime Ministers do. He has been intellectually restless, driven by the centrist mantra of what works, and has had the courage to take on sacred cows that no longer deserve reflexive veneration. His vault fast on tuition fees has inevitably given succour to their opponents north and south of the border. After all, if even their original sponsor no longer supports them. But Lord Adonis, although favouring abolition, has also suggested returning fees to their old level. There must be change, he has written, and the only question is whether they are abolished entirely or whether cross-party support can be built to keep fees to between 1,000 and 3,000 as per their introduction 13 years ago. As much as I admire the man, I think he's plain wrong on the idea of outright abolition and would instead favour cutting the fees or revising the system to make it more impactful. First, the country's universities are among our greatest international brands and only become more important with Brexit. Second... To compete with the best across the world, they need cold, hard cash to fund research, salaries and other costs. Third, take a look at Scotland. I have never been comfortable with the Scottish Government's refusal to ask students to make a contribution to their education, unless you're from a non-EU country or, neatly, England. 
In an era of increasing demands on the public purse, with an ageing population, an underfunded health service, a transitioning jobs market and creaking local services, the diversion of public money to fund what is in effect a middle-class subsidy is verging on obscene. Researchers such as the excellent Lucy Hunter Blackburn have shown beyond doubt that Scotland's system of no fees plus heavily reduced grants means that students from poorer backgrounds are leaving university with giant debts, while those from better off backgrounds emerge relatively unscathed, having lived off the bank of mum and dad. This is not equitable and it is not progressive, it is tokenistic, feel-good rubbish. The evidence to support that analysis continues to arrive. Statistics released this week by UCAS, the university admissions body, show that applications from Scottish teenagers in deprived areas have fallen for the first time in a decade, even as inequality in application rates has narrowed in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. The SNP's solution to this gap is to demand universities reduce the grade requirement for poorer children, which manages the remarkable feat of being defeatist, lazy and patronising all at once. I suspect that Lord Adonis is right and that there will be changes down south. The Tories need to find ways back into the youth vote and this is one of the more obvious routes. Damien Green, who was in effect Deputy PM until his recent resignation, acknowledged as much in a speech when he called for a national debate on the issue. But he warned, if you want to reduce fees, then either fewer people go to university or the experience would be less, because the only other way you can get extra money to go in if you wanted the same number of people, the same kind of teaching, would be to take it from working people through their taxes. The idea behind Tony Blair's introduction of fees was that students should make a reasonable contribution to the cost of their studies. As the overall number of young people attending uni has soared, the burden on the taxpayer has grown ever greater. It is perfectly ethical and, I believe, in fact desirable, for a reasonable charge to be levied on the user of the service who is likely to enjoy a higher lifetime income as a result. Whether that is through a tuition fee or a graduate tax is a moot point. The Scottish Government recently guaranteed that EU students who start here in the 2019-20 academic year, post-Brexit, will receive free tuition. After that, presumably, their successors will be asked to pay. I'm fine with that, as long as our homegrown scholars do the same. The Herald Scotland, on Wednesday the 7th of February 2018. Opinion section. Rosemary Goring. Scots might not be able to see the sheep for the trees. This article by literary editor and columnist Rosemary Goring. Call me prescient, but I wrote a novel last year with the working title Sheep v Trees. Now I can see why this might not have had publishers salivating. And if it ever reaches print, those to whom it's most relevant will not have time to read it, let alone queue at Waterstones hoping to have their copies signed. The story of a Borders Hill farmer, it revolved around the impending ruin of a man whose sheep farm was running into the red. 
He had no option, or so he was advised, but to turn the land over to trees. In the course of conversations with farmers and foresters, this was, I learned, a very hot topic. Unfortunately for the novel's commercial prospects, folk in these lines of work barely have time to read the instructions on a microwave dinner, let alone settle down with a book for an hour before bed. These past few weeks, the conflict between sheep and trees has become fiercer, as the prospect of large areas of woodland replacing pasture is threatening to cause a stramash in the borders. Much of the land in these parts is owned by the Duke of Buckluck, one of Scotland's largest landowners. Lately, he has decided to end tenancy agreements on more than 20 farms in the region, and in the case of three, plans to turn them partly over to trees when the tenancy agreement ends. While 11 tenants are being offered the chance to buy their farms outright, some worry that they will be valued according to what the land would make if forested rather than farmed, as at present. Meanwhile, one tenant, Walter Barry from Yarrow, says his rent will rise by 70%. He's also being obliged to give up 30% of prime grazing hill ground to allow the Buckluck estate to plant trees, thereby making it impossible to turn a profit from his flock. Trouble is simmering, of that there's no doubt. Rightly or wrongly, the farming community believes these changes are harbingers of more intensive afforestation to come. Nobody sensible can object to diversification when done sensitively, but the thought that the animals which give the borders their character are in danger of being shoved off the land, and their owners with them, strikes at the heart of this region. The borders are built on wool, lamb and beef. Every high street is a proud reminder of what's produced locally, butchers vying for the juiciest display of steak, cutlets and mince, while its cashmere and lamb's wool are the envy of the world. Especially alarming are the echoes of the clearances. Once it was people being moved out for sheep, now it's sheep and cattle being swept aside for trees. When so powerful a landover decides to change the way things are done, one can't help being reminded of the disregard of human cost that ravaged great swathes of the highlands and parts of the lowlands too. As the reviled Duke of Sutherland and his ilk learned, an economic decision that looks reasonable on paper can nevertheless have a catastrophic human cost. Yet there are strong and persuasive reasons for considering trees a better use of land in certain situations than livestock. The most compelling argument right now is the financial incentive. In order to meet its climate change targets, the government is paying handsomely for the planting of trees, the front line in carbon capture. This means forestry can make up to eight times more than farming, added to which the uses of wood are endless and the employment this industry offers eventually is considerable. That said, forestry and the tourism that comes with it creates a very different and far less rooted society than that of farmers and their workers. While military ranks of Sitka spruces can blight a landscape, mixed woodland enhances it. Although my preference is for the seemingly empty uplands, I can see the advantages of trees for wildlife and ecology. Meanwhile, purists who hark back to the days when the borders were heavily treed have ancient precedent on their side. But in landscape and farming, evolution, whether natural or man-made, counts for much more than historical reconstruction. You cannot turn the clock back unless in doing so real progress, benefiting the whole community, is being made. And there lies the rub. Trees may offer a level of economic security never known with livestock, and a lifestyle far less arduous than a farmer's grueling schedule. For those who rear sheep and cattle or plough the fields, however, the prospect of losing their all-consuming way of life, often one passed down the generations, is more than painful. It's heartbreaking. My novel might have fared better if I called it the Sheviat, the Stag and the Tall Tall Pine. As it is, my farmer-turned-forester eventually finds new meaning in this kind of work. That, though, is the stuff of fiction. Borderers anxious about what the future holds don't want stories. They want, and deserve, assurances that the choice will be theirs. This article was by literary editor and columnist 
Rosemary Goring. Article from Herald Scotland, 6th of February, 2018. Sport. The SFA and SPFL. Would Scottish football's two-headed monster be better together? Exclusive by Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. When Phil Anderton was appointed Chief Executive of the Scottish Rugby Union back in 2005, he had a huge task on his hands, ensuring the archaic organisation met the demands being placed on it by professionalism. He took over a body with a multi-million pound revenue that was still effectively being run by part-time enthusiasts. The desire to protect personal interests was preventing vital progress from being made. The full-time professionals were at loggerheads with the old guard, who were desperately clinging on to power. The organisation was riddled with internecine fighting. A two-headed monster. That is what Anderton labelled the setup, which he inherited. A new executive board comprised of qualified professionals working under the old blazers of the General Committee when he took over at the SRU. Does this sound familiar? The oval ball game in this country may, off the park at least, have got its act together and put in place a modern, streamlined structure which enabled it to reach a turnover of over £50 million last year. But football, by far and away the most popular sport on these shores, is still being held back by the fact that it is run by two different organisations, the Scottish Football Association and the Scottish Professional Football League, pursuing different objectives. Anderton who has had stints as the Chief Executive of Hearts, Chairman of the ATP World Tour Tennis Finals and Chief Executive of the Al Jazeera Club in Abu Dhabi since leaving the SIU, believes now is the perfect time to follow the lead of rugby, seriously examine the governments of the game in this country and possibly instigate change for the better. The SFA has no Chief Executive after Stuart Reagan resigned last week. The Scottish national team is without a manager. The tie-up with flagship sponsors Vauxhall is set to run out, as is the William Hill Scottish Cup broadcasting deal, while a decision on whether to remain at Hampden will be made in the summer. It always makes sense for any organisation to review its decision-making procedures and its structures, and this is a good point for them to do it, said Anderson, who now works as a company director and management consultant. The Edinburgh-born businessman was on the board of Better Together, the campaign that successfully promoted the no vote during the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. It is a slogan which a growing number feel is appropriate in football in this country now. There is a widespread appetite for change among those who run the game. The involvement of SFA Vice President Rod Petrie and President Alan McRae in the protracted and unsuccessful pursuit of Northern Ireland boss Michael O'Neill as Scotland manager, which ultimately led to Reagan standing down from his position last week, has fuelled that. The very fact that someone can rise to the top in the SFA simply by hanging around long enough is seen by many as a throwback to a bygone era that should be consigned to the past as a matter of urgency. The experiences of Scottish rugby, regardless of the heavy defeat the national team suffered at the hands of Wales in Cardiff in their opening Six Nations game on Saturday, certainly suggest that change is possible. Rugby was an amateur sport and then it went professional in 1995, said Anderton. 
That meant there was a need to bring in outside people with a commercial background and an executive board which would sit side by side with the general committee was formed. But there was a lot of antagonism and a lot of power struggles as a result. The general committee was made up of representatives of the clubs. They had jobs elsewhere and they were doing it because they were committed to the sport. You rose through the ranks to become vice president, senior vice president and then president, depending on how long they had served. There were people who were passionate about rugby, but who were full-time dentists or farmers. They were being charged with making decisions about broadcast deals worth millions and millions of pounds. That was one of the big issues that we faced. You basically had two groups of passionate people. I called it a double-headed monster. We wanted to move to a single board with sports people, commercial people who were accountable for making decisions. What was recommended was a full board with a chief executive officer, a financial director, a commercial director, a rugby director and non-executive directors, people with a good understanding of the commercial world. Beneath them there would be a council of representatives who would give feedback but wouldn't be the group that made binding decisions. Of course, I wasn't involved in implementing it. Anderton stood down after David Mackay, the former John Menzies Group Chief Executive, was ousted from his position as Chairman of the Executive Board by amateur officials who clearly feared they would be marginalised, in a move which sparked what amounted to a civil war in Scottish rugby, but which eventually, years later, resulted in the structure which is now in place. He believes that lengthy and painful process proves that revolution is achievable if there is a desire for it. I'm not familiar with all the ins and outs of Scottish football, so I don't know what the answer would be, but it can be done, he said. I think it's very sensible to have a look at general structures. For me, it's all about having a single body which is responsible for the game overall and which is accountable. You need the right balance of people who understand the sport and have strong experience of commercial realities of the sport. Having a multitude of decision-making bodies isn't a successful way to run a professional enterprise. When you have all those various groups, you have parochial interests and a lot of people pushing their own agendas. You need one accountable body. The Herald Scotland on Wednesday the 7th of February 2018. Sports section. Rona Howie's Olympic gold remains an iconic sporting moment. This article by sports columnist Susan Egelstaff. Did we get a write-up in the Herald? In the aftermath of her greatest achievement, Rona Howie remained blissfully ignorant to the reality as she held a telephone to her ear somewhere in Salt Lake City. The Olympic medal, which the previous night had been draped around her shoulders, sat nearby, the whirlwind of emotions still whirling through her mind as a voice 5,000 miles away crackled and popped on the other end of the line. Eight words was all she needed. You're on every front page in the country. It was at that moment Howie, who was then known under her married name of Rona Martin, got a hint of quite what she had achieved. The Herald was the one newspaper that regularly covered curling, so she expected no more than a lone report on her rink's victory. In fact, almost six million people stayed up past midnight to watch her win Britain's first Winter Olympic gold medal since Torville and Dean in 1984, and overnight she had become a household name. The reaction of the nation, admits the Ayrshire woman, was something of a shock to the system. When we won, we did a press conference, and they told us how many people had stayed up to watch, and we couldn't believe it, she said. The interest from media while we were still out in Salt Lake City was huge. I phoned home to ask if we got a write-up in the Glasgow Herald, because it was the Herald that would always give us a little bit of coverage, and when I was told that we were on the front page of every newspaper, I was speechless. 
but it still hadn't really hit home what we'd done. Howie's path to goal had been far from smooth. Her rink lost four of their first ten games, but sneaked through to the semi-finals, where they faced favourites, Canada. A tight 6-5 win guaranteed them a medal, before a 4-3 win against Switzerland secured the gold. Joy was not Howie's initial emotion, however. When we won, we just felt relief, she said. We'd played nearly 40 hours of competition, so in the moment, we were just relieved that it was over. At that point, I don't think I even fully realised that we were Olympic champions, because we'd been so focused on winning the game. Howie's return to Britain was, by her own admission, somewhat surreal. An appearance on Richard and Judy before she'd even made it back to Scotland was just the start of things, with an invitation to the Royal Box at Wimbledon that summer a particular highlight. A flurry of invitations to speak at events followed, as did people stopping her in the street to tell her they'd watched her victory. But for Howie, the most positive knock-on effect of her gold medal was the boost it gave to curling. It was really nice to be recognised, because our sport only gets that kind of coverage every four years, she said. So to get that publicity was great, because it educated people about the sport. And for us, for the profile of the sport to be raised so drastically was fantastic. It's one of those historic moments in sport now. Before we won, people would say, remember when Torval and Dean won, and that's what it's like for us now. People say, remember when the curlers won. But that was great, because everything we were asked to do, it was raising the profile of curling, which was fantastic. It's been years since Howie watched a replay of the 2002 final. That she only has a copy on VHS is a sticking point, But in 2014, she had to deal with the trauma of having her gold medal stolen from a museum in Dumfries, where it was on show. An application for a replacement has been lodged with the IOC, but it remains to be seen whether or not it will be successful. For Howie, the disappointment of losing her medal is less on a personal level, and more that she cannot use it to inspire kids as she had before the theft. I was gutted when it got stolen, the main reason being that I go to a lot of events or into schools and kids would get the chance to touch the medal and put it round their neck, and so if that inspired one person to go for the Olympics, then I felt like I was doing my job, she said. I loved when kids would get so excited to see the medal, and the fact that I can't do that anymore is really sad. Howie will not be in Pyeongchang for this year's Winter Olympics, which begin on Friday, but she will be heavily involved working for the BBC. Team Muirhead, skipped by Eve Muirhead, won Olympic bronze four years ago, and she has her sights set on improving that result this time round, which Howie believes is eminently possible. I feel like they can definitely improve on their bronze from 2014, she said. This is Eve's third Olympics, so she's very experienced and there's a good team dynamic there too. It's such fine margins, and the difference between winning and losing can be millimetres, but they know how to handle these situations and Eve calls a very good game, so I'm very hopeful that they will be on the podium. This article by sports columnist Susan Agelstaff. Thank you for listening to this week's Digest edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review Review and the producer was Jay Kidd. Q&Review Review is a Scottish charity, number SCO 18016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishopbriggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can contact us via email at information at qandreview.com or via leaving a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976. Please remember to return the cassette in the wallet provided. Just flip over the address label and post it.